Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 8. And we're going to begin reading this morning at verse 22. Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 22. We're just going to get right into the scripture here. So they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. This is God's word. Um, I just want to say at the beginning that I um, have probably read this passage dozens if not hundreds of times, Um, but I, I... I studied it, read more than I'd ever read before on this passage, and there were some things that were pretty cool that I learned that I, I, I want to be able to communicate with you this morning. But what we see here is a group of friends who um, maybe either had a healing touch from Jesus themselves, or maybe they had heard of his power and they wanted to share it with their friend, uh, whether they had had a saving touch we don't know. Maybe they had touched, uh, been touched specifically by Jesus' teaching. Whatever it was, they thought of a friend who was in need, and they brought their friend to Jesus. Uh, just so we understand the setting a little bit, uh, William Barclay is a commentator and a historian, and he writes this about the man's situation. You have it on your outline. Blindness was one of the great curses of the East. It was caused partly by ophthalmia, and partly by the pitiless glare of the sun. It was greatly aggravated by the fact that people knew nothing of hygiene and of cleanliness. It was common to see a person with matter-encrusted eyes on which the flies persistently settled. Naturally, this carried the infection far and wide, and blindness was a scourge. Well, we're going to look at the lessons that Jesus wanted the disciples, and I believe he wants us to learn from this passage. Um, So at the top of the outline again, in chapter 8, we've come to the midpoint, the climax of the book of Mark. In chapters 1 to 8, the main question has really been, who is Jesus? Peter gives us this answer in the next section that we're going to look at next week. Um, But in these verses, there's a healing miracle that is one of only two miracles only recorded in the Gospel of Mark. This miracle is very unique because at least it seems to not work the first time. It was a visual parable that is historically true and symbolizes the spiritual pilgrimage of the disciples and us. And it also serves as a bridge between the last section that we looked at last week and what we'll look at next week. Well, in the Gospels, Jesus heals at least seven blind men. 
And each time he does it, he does it in a different way. A different way. His approach is different. Uh, this is the only time that there's a gradual miracle recorded in any of the Gospels. There are a couple of comments to make at, at the beginning of the passage. So verse 23 sets the stage for the actual healing. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. So first of all, and this is on your outline, and I think this is worth pointing out, and that is that Jesus, we see him as being uniquely thoughtful and caring. Jesus is uniquely thoughtful and uniquely caring. Jesus, as God, could enter into the mind and the heart of the person that he was trying to heal. He could think their thoughts and feel what they felt. And so Jesus, knowing the struggles this man was having, took him by the hand, because he was blind, and led him outside of the village. You know, we will, I, I know that many of you have friends that you are, uh, that you are sharing Jesus with, that you want to know Jesus. You will never be disappointed in bringing your friend to Jesus. Never. You're never disappointed in coming to him. He's promised to be there to help us. Uh, he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so we know that when we come to him, he will be there. And we know that when we bring our friends to him, they will not be disappointed. We will not be disappointed because they will meet Jesus. Verse 23 continues. When he had spit on the man's eyes, he put his hands on him. So why the spit? Jesus, and this is on your outline, used methods that we can understand. The ancient world believed in the healing power of saliva. That seems kind of funny, but uh, think about when you burn your hand or you cut your hand. I think our first instinct, although I'm not a medical doctor and do not recommend this, is to put it in our mouth to ease the pain. Probably not a good idea, but that's what, I mean, that's, that was the healing power of saliva. So this man is brought to Jesus, and that, that just reminds us too, who do we need to bring to Jesus? Are we praying? Who are we praying for? Are we praying for people to come to Jesus? We need to be. We need to be praying for our friends. Uh, but we know that Jesus will meet them right where they're at, and he will minister to them in the way that they need to be ministered to. So if we put this in the context of this chapter, <clears throat> Jesus, one of the disciples, and he wants us to first of all understand that we are all spiritually blind. This is number one on the outline. We are all spiritually blind. No one sees all of God's truth at once. Everyone here this morning is in process. None of us has arrived yet. There is so much that we can learn that if we lived a hundred years or even a million years, we would need to learn about the grace of God. We would never stop growing in grace. We would never stop growing in our knowledge of who Jesus is. So here's the context. In verses 1 to 10 that we looked at last week, it was about how the disciples didn't get who Jesus was. They didn't understand the magnitude of who Jesus was. And then in verses 11 to 21 that we looked at was the fact that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they didn't get it either. They didn't understand who Jesus was. 
And then the section after this, after what we're going to look at today, starting at verse 27, is really the high point of the Gospel of Mark. It's the apex where Peter makes the great confession of who Jesus is. Peter seems to get it. And the final verse that we looked at last time was verse 21. Look at verse 21 in your Bibles. At the very end it says, Do you still not understand? Do you still not get it? So why is the account of the healing that we have here sandwiched between these two sections? And a number of commentaries I read on the passage point out that this isn't just a miracle, and this is on your outline, this isn't just a miracle, this is also a parable. We already said that when Jesus heals, he does it differently almost every time, either maybe with, sometimes with spit, sometimes with, uh, from a distance, sometimes with a thought, sometimes with a, a touch. Uh, he heals differently when he encounters, in particular, blind men. When you see the way that Jesus heals someone, it's not, he's not healing them in the way that he has to do it. He's healing them in the way the people need it, in the way the people who see it need it. In this case, the disciples. He wants to teach them and he wants to teach us about healing. So Jesus is doing it the way he does it because this is the healing the man needs and this is the lesson the disciples need. And the more than just healing this man, he's, giving us, he's teaching us what's going on in our own hearts and in our own lives. Remember, the disciples up to this point don't get it. So this man, this man who's blind is a, is a symbol, if you will, for the disciples and the Pharisees of not seeing Jesus for who he really is. We see that through this man and no one is able to understand who Jesus really is and we see this in this, in this miracle that he does without an external and a supernatural intervention. They need Jesus, he needs Jesus to touch him. So you have this on your outline. When we think of, of who the disciples and the Pharisees represent from the last section in their spiritual blindness, it's all of us. We're all represented there. It, it represents those who are closest to Jesus and those who are furthest away. It represents those who are moral and those who are immoral. This is what the prophet Jeremiah talked about in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, when he says, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's what the Apostle Paul teaches in Romans chapter 3, really the whole chapter, but in verse 23, he says, For all have sinned and, and, and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says we're all blind. None of us are exempt. Another thing the commentaries that I read seem to all agree on is that it takes much more than just one touch from Jesus to cure our spiritual blindness because our blindness goes so deep. That's what it represents here. That's what he's trying to communicate to the, to the disciples and to us. Wouldn't it be great if our sin was just all wiped out when we became a Christian? If when we became a Christian, we just never sinned again? 
then we'd be in heaven, that we'd go right to heaven. That would be pretty awesome, wouldn't it? We become a Christian and we're just zapped up immediately to heaven. But he leaves us here so that we don't go to heaven by ourselves, so that we take other people with us. So I think it's helpful to talk about some of the implications of what this means. And the first implication, you have it on your outline, is that even when our sight is cleared up enough to have a relationship with God through Jesus, it's still not cleared up enough to never sin again. Have you ever noticed the Apostle Paul and how he viewed himself over the duration of his ministry? In one of his earliest books in 2 Corinthians, he writes, I don't think I'm in the least least inferior to those super apostles. He's a pretty high estimation of himself. And then in Ephesians, one of the books he writes kind of in the middle of his ministry, he says, I'm the very, describes himself as the very least of all the saints. And then in one of his last books, 1 Timothy, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. So, in other words, and this is on your outline, the more he grew in Christ, the clearer, it seems, he saw his own sinfulness. So, that should be the mark of how we move in our lives. The more we grow in our lives, the more we see our own sinfulness before God. So, do you see your sinfulness before God? Do you see the depth of your sin like the Apostle Paul did? Where you could call yourself the chief of of all sinners? The least of the saints? Are are you aware of your sinfulness of God? And when you're aware of it as Christians, that means that, that God's leading us to confess our sin before him. And we have this promise in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we repent, we change our ways, we go in a different direction from where we've been going. We follow Jesus. And so practically, and this is the second implication, it means one can never feel superior or impatient with others. With people who don't yet believe, or with people who are younger in the faith. Maybe people who are less mature Christians. We can and we should pray for them. We should disciple them. We should help them to grow. We should encourage them. But we're never to get irritable and impatient with them. Because we know how patient God has been with us. Do you know how patient God has been with you? I know how patient he's been with me. And so we can be patient with the people that God brings into our lives wherever they're at spiritually. You know, I think we've all been at a place where we've taken, uh, we've been talking to another believer and we know that we're thinking about something in a biblical way, but they don't see it in in a biblical way and we're trying to communicate it to them, but but they just don't get it. And, And hopefully we don't say this, but maybe we think, man, you are so foolish, why can't you get this? But you know, if we just think about it, I think all of us, if we could look at ourselves 10 years ago or 20 years ago, we would say maybe the same thing. How was I so foolish then? How did I not get this part of the Christian life? How did I not get this part of who Jesus is and what my life should be about? 
And so, again, we can't forget that God has been patient with us, and we have to remember, and this is on your outline, that spiritual sight is ultimately a gift from God. To be able to see spiritually means we've been touched by God, by the Holy Spirit. He's, he's enlightened our eyes. And even us being impatient with others, and maybe if, if you're chronically impatient with someone, maybe it's God saying to you, this is a, a, an area where you are blind and where you need to have another touch from me so that you can be more patient with this person, with these people. If you believe, don't be grumpy with people who don't believe. You love on them and you pray for them and you watch God work in their lives. You know, I talk to people regularly who don't yet believe in Jesus, but who want to. They're just not quite there. They're, they're, they don't know what the issue is. And so this will help us as we communicate with people who are in that situation as we share Jesus with them, and you've got this on your outline, but coming to faith in Christ and having your life changed by him is not like adopting a religion. When you follow another religion, you, you can do it on your own. You can figure it out. You can figure out what you need to do to follow that religion. And people think, you know what? <clears throat> I'm a pretty good person already, <clears throat> so now I'll work on learning what a Christian does and doesn't do, <clears throat> and I'll be a Christian. That's not the way your life has changed. That's not the way it works. You have to go to Jesus and say, I don't see you clearly, and I want to. I know I'm blind, <clears throat> so I ask you to, excuse me, I ask you to open my eyes. I'm a sinner, and I need to receive you into my life. That's the only way. It's the difference between head knowledge and genuine belief. <clears throat> you know, it's like a guy who never wore a seatbelt, and he, he was a careful driver, said, I really don't need to wear a seatbelt. And so he said, I, drive, I don't drive fast, I drive, I'm very careful. And even though friends would say, you know, you should wear your seatbelt, he just never wore a seatbelt. And then a friend of his got in his car one time and he had a seatbelt on and said, hey, why the seatbelt now? And he said, well, I've always known I should wear it, but I visited a friend in the hospital. He wasn't going fast. It wasn't his fault. He didn't have a seatbelt on, but he has 120 stitches in his head, in his face. And I thought, okay, I've always known it, but now I really know it. Now I'm going to wear my seatbelt. It's the difference between head knowledge it's, it's the difference between head knowledge and belief, and genuine belief. If every believer, every believer I know who looks back on their lives when they've met Christ, they're going to go, wow, I can't believe I was that immature at that point. And so our main problem that we're blind to is, is, is who, is, and this is, points us really to the next section, so we're going to like sneak ahead a little bit, is that we're blind, and this is number two on the outline, to who Jesus is. We're blind to who Jesus is. Jesus is the foundation, and he's the one we need to see clearly. We're going to look more closely at this passage next week, but um, we're going to look at, look at verse 27. 
they're walking along and Jesus says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And then in verse 29, he says to the disciples, who do you say I am? You know, there's a huge difference right here between Jesus and the founder of, founders of every other religion. Muhammad, Moses, Buddha, Confucius, never walked around saying the things Jesus said. They walked around pointing people to their concept and their idea of God, but they never talked like Jesus did. The disciples said to Jesus, you know, Jesus, they believe you're like John the Baptist. You're like Elijah. You're, you're right up there with the holiest of them. You're like one of the prophets, one of the wise men. And Jesus says to them, in essence, I have not come to show you how to save yourself. I have not come to enlighten you. I've come to die for your flaws. I've come to die in your place as your savior. I've not come to point you to God. I am God who is going to, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to save you. And so you have this on the outline. We absolutely need Jesus or we have no hope. The one thing we have to admit when we come to Christ is our sin, our own self-sufficiency. That's what gets in the way of us seeing Jesus clearly. It's like someone said who is addicted to alcohol. You know, if you say to an addict that they're addicted, what do they say? They say, you know what? Well, I drink, but I'm not controlled by it. I I can handle it. I can stop whenever I want. And I'm guessing you know that it's when someone who's addicted to anything says, I'm powerless against this thing. I need help. That's when they can begin to get some solutions to their problems. And until we say, I am blind and I am a sinner before God, we will never be able to get help from God. That's the only way to get help from him is to say, yes, Lord, I am a sinner. That's the only way to advance in our Christian life is to say, what is it, Lord, that's blocking me? I need another touch from you. I want to go deeper into my relationship with you. And the Bible says that we're absolutely controlled by our sin. Back to Romans 3. We think we can handle our own problems. We're, We're like spiritual alcoholics. If we just get a tiny bit of help. We're so deceived. We say, yes, I'm selfish to a degree. I get that but I'm not really controlled by it. I'm not out of control. I know my flaws, I'll be fine. In fact, it's offensive for you to say that I'm gonna spend an eternity apart from God in hell. That's offensive. We don't want to admit that what our hearts are capable of. And we're in denial of our own inability to know God. That's what Paul says in Romans 3. No one seeks God. We need a touch from God. We need a touch from Jesus. No other leader of any other religion says, I'm your Savior and your Lord, and you have to make your life all about me. Only Jesus says that. Our text also points out, and this is on your outline, how to be healed of our blindness. So spiritual sight is restored when we receive Christ, and then 
a process begins, and the Bible calls this process sanctification. And this is the only way to get out of our blindness, is to receive Christ, to begin that process. And when we think of examples of conversion in the Bible, and I think this is where this miracle is so helpful. We, we think of the Apostle Paul. And he's on, his, on the road to Damascus. In one minute, he's killing Christians. And like a minute later, he's preaching the gospel. And we go, what? That's crazy. That's the kind of conversion I want. We look at Paul and we say, that's normative. I don't know that it's that normative. You know, of course, Paul still had to grow as a Christian. It says in Galatians that he went and spent three years in Arabia and three years in a seminary with the Lord as his teacher. That would help a lot. So there's another model of conversion that we see here, and that's Peter. So when would you say is the moment Peter crosses the threshold from genuine saving unbelief to, to saving belief? from unbelief to saving belief. When's the moment? We kind of don't know. Because it's, we see him get the picture little by little, but not all at once. And we'll see this next week. Peter gets some of it in the next section, but almost immediately Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. So he gets some of it, but he doesn't get all of it. So at some point, Peter goes from trusting himself for his own salvation to trusting Christ. But I don't know if we can be 100% sure at what point that happens for Peter. And we get discouraged because we tend to look at the example of Paul and we say, that's the way I want to be converted. More than the example of Peter. So if you ever feel stuck Understand that you just being aware of, of your stuckness is a good thing before God. You can ask the Lord to help you to see more clearly. Know that he has led you to the point of, of and he's given you, if you will, a holy dissatisfaction. And so now you can pray and you can say, Lord, continue to give me this holy dissatisfaction. And at the same time, will you touch my life so that I can see my sin and confess it and repent so that I can see you more clearly, so I can go deeper in my life with you? And what we observe here is that seeing Jesus more clearly in our lives happens in stages. That's why I think there's, there's these two touches from Jesus of this blind man. Did Jesus lack power the first time? Absolutely not. But it was what this man needed. It was the lesson the disciples needed to learn. We need to be honest and say, Lord, show me where I'm holding on to my self-sufficiency. Show me where I'm holding on to my pride. And there's a million examples it could give, and, and you can think of them, I'm sure, too, but, you know, someone who's so self-sufficient and so prideful, they rarely ask questions about other people. They, they rarely, uh, I mean, they, they generally will, they want to dominate the conversation. They're, they're generally not good listeners. They don't know how to give compliments to others. They want to be served and instead of looking for opportunities to serve others. 
which is what Mark is all about, right? Mark 10, 45, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Just remember that on your own, you're not even capable of wanting more of his love unless he's already given you some. No one seeks after God, Paul says. So we ask him for more sight. We ask him for a second touch and another touch. Kent Hughes was one of the commentators I read on this passage, and he makes this comment. You've got it on your outline. The historic miracle is a parable of spiritual reality. The progressive healing of the blind man reveals to us that God sometimes heals us in stages. We may and must ask for spiritual growth, but we must not lay down guidelines as to how God ought to produce this. We must not, for example, ask God to develop our spiritual lives and then when he pulls out the shears and begins to prune, say, no, Lord, you can't do it that way. You ever done that? Do not ask the Lord to make you sensitive to others and then resent the difficult person who crosses your life at work or in the church. God often circumvents a proud presumptuous spirit, whereas spiritual grace may be mediated by a friendship, a discipline, or a hardship. And then look again at verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And I think this is so insightful here because what Jesus wants to communicate to the disciples and to us, and this is on your outline, is that healing comes within community. It happens with brothers and sisters. We need this corporate worship like we're doing this morning, but we also need a band of brothers. We need a band of sisters who will get around us and pray for us and support us. We need a band of other couples that we can, we can rely on to, to pray for us, that we can pray for them, they can rely on us. And this blind man couldn't have found Jesus on his own. He was blind. But he had friends who took him to Jesus. And we know they're friends because they begged Jesus to touch him. Only a friend would be begging for Jesus to touch their friend. And it's with friends that we read the word and we discuss and we, we, we see God's word worked into our lives. And that's the benefit of being able to do it in community. The Christian life was never meant to be a solo thing. We don't live it on our own. We live it together in community. That's why we need, that's why there's, I don't know how many, 75 different one another passages. Love one another, pray for one another, comfort one another, encourage one another. And the list goes on and on and on. Why? Because we need each other. Someone said even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. We don't do this by ourselves. We do it in community. And we're dependent on God as well as our friends. And, and what's scary about that is we're saying, okay, I need to be vulnerable to God and I need to be vulnerable to my friends, to these other people, so they can really know how to pray for me. We're self-confident, and, and that can be scary, by the way, to do that. 
but we're self-confident, not in ourselves, but in Christ's confidence. It's like what Paul writes to the Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I, I like the way that that's translated or paraphrased in the Amplified Bible. It's this, and you've got it on your outline. I have strength for all things in Christ who empowers me. I am ready for anything and equal to anything through him who infuses inner strength into me. And then it says, I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. I'm not self-sufficient in myself. I'm self-sufficient only in Christ's sufficiency. And we need to see that the ultimate way that Jesus cured our blindness, and that's what our, that's what our focus is to be on. So what is the ultimate way that he cured our blindness? And when we see that, it can give us confidence to know that Jesus can make us see. Look at verse 26. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. And look also down at verse 30, just to get ahead a little bit even to next week. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So something like this has been mentioned up to now 15 times in the the Gospel of Mark. So far in the first eight chapters, 15 times. Over and over again, Jesus heals people. He teaches people. And then he tells them, don't tell anybody. And they go and tell everybody. (laughs) Why is he doing that? Well, Jesus knows that eventually, word of what he does, he heals people, he raises people from the dead, word is going to get out to the Romans that that's what he's doing, and the Romans are going to have to kill him, because he stands against everything the Romans stand for. And the reason he keeps telling people about this is that he has work to do before the crucifixion. And he's God and he knows the perfect timing. And from a divine perspective, he knows that timing will be perfect. From a human perspective, we could say he's kind of slowing the process down so he doesn't get to the cross too fast because every time he does something good, every time he does a miracle, every time he teaches, it's like he's putting a nail in his hand. Because that's where it's going to end up. That's where it has to end up. So do you remember on the cross what Jesus says in Mark 15? And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then what happens next? The next thing that happens, as we know from Luke 23, it says, it was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining. This is not hyperbole. This is what really happened. When Christ lost the Father's love for just that moment, just that moment in time that he bore all of our sins, he was cast into utter darkness. He was cast into the darkness. In order to heal us from our blindness, he had to go into the darkness himself and bear our sins on the cross. And he did that for you. That's how much he loves you. He did that for you. And when you meditate on that just for a moment, just for a tiny bit, isn't that motivation enough to want to make you long to be like Jesus? To live for him? What should happen is that it changes our perspective about everything. 
We stop thinking so much about ourselves. We stop worrying about what other people think about us. We live for an audience of one. We live for Jesus. And if you sense yourself moving in that direction, that's because your sight is clearing. That's because the Holy Spirit is at work in your life to draw you closer to the Father. And the light you're seeing is the truth of the gospel. It's the truth of what Jesus did on the cross for you. And you look at what Jesus did to cure your blindness. And you say, Lord, I want to see more clearly. Touch me again. Heal me. I want to see you, Jesus. That's what John wrote about in 1 John. John says, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So don't ever think that you can always say this is how God should work. He should work like he did in the Apostle Paul's life every time. No, you can never put God in a box. I like what Tennyson said when he said, our little systems have their day. They have their day and cease to be. They are but broken lights of thee. And thou, O Lord, art more than they. You know, there are times that we can see the moment of salvation when someone crosses from belief to unbelief, like Paul on the Damascus Road in a flash of light. But I think more normative for the disciples, what they really went through is, and and why Jesus healed in this way, and this miracle was a parable, is that we receive a little light, and then we we, we receive a little bit more light, and then progressively more and more as we grow in our faith. We see our sin more clearly. We confess it. We repent and we live a holy life before God. You know, we're called to be obedient to the light we have and and we ask God to give us more and we offer to him a sacrifice of praise and that is our obedience before him. Think about it. Think hard about it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this amazing challenge, for this incredible promise. We're sinners and we're addicted to our own self-centeredness. And we know it's only by the grace of God, the amazing grace of God, that we see Jesus and come to grips with what he did on the cross. And that we can begin to clear our sight. Father, it's only by a touch from you that that'll happen. Thank you, Father, that Jesus was willing to be plunged into darkness so that we could be moved from darkness to sight. So, Lord, we pray that you would heal us, help us, and change us as we look at the cross and your amazing grace. In Jesus' name we pray. And so now may God himself, the God who makes everyone holy and whole, make you holy and whole put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.